c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. Welcome back to Histories and Mysteries. I am Jessica. And I'm still Janelle. I had a Terry's chocolate orange for dinner and I'm ready to do this. Yeah, I have personally uh, what I would call an irresponsibly early like kilo bag of mini eggs beside me. And I didn't even realize that was weird until you pointed it out. Just, I was at the store the other day and I'm like, hot damn, mini eggs. And it never even occurred to me that it is January. <laughs> It's January, and you have a bag of specifically Easter-themed ones, Jessica. These ones are either super old, you're eating, like, fossilized mini-eggs, or they're irresponsibly early. Why are they out so early? What do they know? (laughs) It's probably because Easter was canceled last year, to be honest. They probably just had, like, stores and stores and stores of (laughs) mini-eggs panicked, didn't sell enough of them, and now they're just like, hey, I guess, like, it's almost March. Well, April <laughs> this year. God, what year <laughs> so is it? So I am, I'm probably eating, like, ancient fossilized COVID mini-eggs. <laughs> Part of a balanced breakfast. Mostly what I've eaten today. I also had exactly one burrito. <laughs> so I have a... I have a very healthy diet. I'm pretty sure that if you inhale too close to me, not only will you get COVID, you'll get diabetes. (laughs) She shits once every three days, but when it happens, it's like a Gatling gun. (laughs) Uh, My sweat is legally qualified to be Gatorade. (laughs) It is a sports drink. (laughs) Jessica, just... Sitting by herself in the dark, sweating out some chocolate syrup. It's fine. Everything's <laughs> fine. What a hellish nightmare we live in. Uh, when my sweat dries, it's just sh- powdered sugar. <laughs> <laughs> That's what your mother wants to hear on this podcast. Uh, but today we are on to our second part of uh, Mishima Yukio, the darling author of the mid-20th century Japanese literary world, uh, and deeply questionable human being otherwise. Um, <laughs> last time we discussed his uh, a horrifying childhood and equally horrifying, though less possibly psychologically damaging, early life. <laughs> but now we get to go to the best part. Oh, now we get to the fun stuff. (laughs) Teenage Mutant Emperor Sex Cult. Teenage Mutant Emperor (laughs) Sex Cult. (laughs) Oh, yes. Now we get to the juicy business. None of that that tiresome World War II and existential angst. Now we get to the full-on midlife crisis involving a teenage death cult. It's gonna be great. <laughs> this is the stuff that gets you in a million listicles in the early 2000s. This is the stuff right here. The question of why and how a lifelong and largely apolitical nihilist aesthet like Mishima would come to identify with ultranationalism is a tricky one. He, he doesn't seem to have been particularly associated with the political right, 
and repeatedly rebuffed established right-wing figures who reached out to him. Mishima was always patriotic, certainly, but it's difficult to say whether or not his growing interest in ultranationalism was fully or partially sincere, or whether it was just another excuse to push his theatrical death wish from the realm of fantasy into a reality. In, in a particularly on-the-nose case of foreshadowing, in 1960, Mishima wrote a story called Patriotism, about a small number of Imperial Army officers leading a cadre of 1,350 men in a coup attempt to reinstate the full serenity of the Japanese Emperor. When the coup fails, in part due to the resistance of the Emperor, two of the insurrectionists commit seppuku, ritual suicide by self-disembowelment, while the others are executed. Uh, one army lieutenant, who is kept ignorant by his fellow officers because of his recent marriage, commits suicide along his wife rather than attempt to subdue his comrades in arms. And I would characterize the description of the disembowelment as both sensual and gratuitous. Oh, well, that that whole thing is alarmingly prophetic, but... um, Yeah, so like he's oh. fantasizing about this like a decade before he actually does it. It's been brewing. It's been brewing. In the same story, there is a depiction of nationalism that is simultaneously deeply horny, but also pseudo-religious, which turns devotion to the living deity that is the emperor into a Shinto article of faith. God, but you know, you know it's just like never a good thing when like uncontainable horniness meets like religious zealotry. Like that's just never been a good combination for anybody in human history. <laughs> It's never been a good idea. <laughs> speaking of the Catholic, when deep sexual oppression meets religion, uh, it it gets weird fast. Things get very weird very fast. A lot of Catholic art is almost irredeemably horny. Like, you probably shouldn't look directly at it, regardless of age. <laughs> it's, it's like, this isn't pornography, it's... It's, it's, it's worse. the sainted mother of Jesus. No, it's worse. It's so With her tits out. <laughs> she's, she's always got the tits out. and Always. At least one. Baby once. Jesus always doesn't seem to quite know how to feel about it. And, like, I think the best thing about early Christian art is, like, most of it was drawn by people who had never seen exactly how a boob attached to the human body. <laughs> it's abundantly obvious. It's just very obvious. They just got this breast coming out of her clavicle. <laughs> <laughs> just jutting right out there. It's about the size and shape of a grapefruit. <laughs> and then just like 300 years later, you're just in an art museum on a Tuesday looking at a woman achieving climax by breastfeeding. And you're like, all right. Just some some woman with an absolute cow's face orgasming as she breastfeeds an 80-year-old savior. Like, the whole thing. Baby Jesus always looks like this. They've also never seen a baby. He always looks like this angry little holy raisin. <laughs> Just this ripped, proportionate adult man. With the face of a prune. He is. He's always just a tiny adult man with, like, upsettingly distinct abs. And I, I, th I think I think there is actually, like, a reason for that. Like, it was it was something about, like, oh, Jesus was was born fully formed, like, a homunculus, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm like yeah, it seems just like, like a Ooh. lot of, like, justification for the fact that you don't know what a baby looks like. <laughs> Our baby's ripped as fuck? Sure, why not? <laughs> seems reasonable. 
the entire medieval western canon is just filled with neck tits and ripped fucking babies just jacked infants that like like not only are they unbelievably cut <laughs> they've clearly been reducing water weight for competitions <laughs> like they are unhealthily ripped Mishima would later play the lieutenant in a film adaption, uh, which created quite a bit of a stir in the media uh, for all the people who fainted at the seppuku scene. Oh. Apparently there was liberal use of stage blood. He just was way too into it. I just need to murder myself in front of audiences everywhere. See, people needed to check on this man a lot more than they did. I, I would say, like, over 90% of his works that I am aware of involve suicide in some manner. And it's the sort of a thing that you, you, can, you can have, like, the odd suicide in your literary production. But when it's every time... One, I think it starts to get a little bit trite. It gets a little bit old. Shake it up a little bit. Maybe have the heroine not toss herself off a cliff after her lover. Like, maybe, you know, maybe... Maybe, <laughs> maybe she lives. Just for shits and giggles. Maybe she murdered by someone else. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe everyone lives for once. I just don't get predictable. But I, I think, like, the 300th suicide scene you write, someone should ask if you're doing okay. <laughs> it's also kind of jarring with, like, the age that he lived in, because, like, he was writing this stuff, like, well into the 60s. Yes. <laughs> like, violent suicide for the glory of the Emperor, or otherwise, was not really a... It's not so much a thing anymore. It's not on like... everybody's minds quite in the same way. <laughs> Everyone is like, color TV, and he's just like, it'll show the blood better. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's alarming. It's alarming. The signs were there. And, and, and getting back to the the, 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 the ultra-nationalism, like, the thing that always makes me wonder is this, like, like, are you a genuine nationalist, or are you just horny for fascism? At what point do you ask yourself, am I a Nazi, or do I just really like Hugo Boss? <laughs> Those aren't topical questions at all. Uh, although, although as a, as a cultural note, uh, the wife actually uh, does not commit ritual disembowelment. She does not commit seppuku. Uh, she stabs herself through the neck. Oh, uh, which was traditional for uh, female suicides uh, in 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 olden day Japan. The uh, the disembowelment was uh, was what men did. So don't disembowel yourself unless you're some kind of lesbo. It's unfeminine of you. I mean, ideally, <laughs> don't do this at all. That's, ideally. That's, ideally, don't. Ideally, no. This isn't about Japan. It's about art, and it's about him. Like, he doesn't want to kill himself because he's so devoted to Japan. He's devoted to Japan because he so wants to kill himself. He's a cannon looking for something to point at. So the story was possibly inspired in part by an attempted coup by Imperial Army officers on February 26th, 1936, and an incident in 1960 where the chairman of the Socialist Party, Asa Numa Inajiro, was assassinated by a right-wing student who stabbed him in front of a full auditorium that happened to contain a news camera. Mishima even once commented on the case, commending in particular the assassin's decision to hang himself in prison, faithful to Japanese tradition. Oh. 
he he had sort of an odd understanding of assassination where he he thought that attacking women and children was cowardly and and that assassination should ideally be one on one at the risk of the assassin's life. So he wasn't he was he was never anti-assassination. He just thinks you should do it like a man. It's not really an assassination if you give your target the chance to kill you back. That's just like <laughs> Game of Thrones style trial by combat. Like that's not you're missing the point. <laughs> It's just a non-consensual, one-sided duel. It, the fact that, like, he thinks assassination is cowardly unless it ends in, like, fisticuffs is... <laughs> it's a perspective. It's one way to think about it, but it's a little bit strange. Uh, the 60s were a time of significant political tension in Japan and radical left-wing opposition to renewing the security agreement with the United States, including large-scale protests, riots, and other radical actions, had flared extreme right-wing sentiment and terrorism. In the sa same month as Mishima, young author Oe Kenzaburo published another story inspired by the same incident, but instead sardonically skewering the assassin in a manner similar to how we would talk about a modern incel terrorist. <laughs> a loser. Basically just calling him a loser virgin. But more, <laughs> but more artsy. <laughs> <laughs> they dressed it up a little, but the message is the same. Mishima himself received numerous death threats uh, and was assigned a protective detail by police due to a persistent rumor that he had recommended for publication uh, a story written by a friend of his where the emperor and his family are executed in a revolution. Oh. Uh, Mishima followed this incident by writing a play in which the protagonist escapes assassination only to fall into a listless depression that compels him to recreate the excitement of nearly getting murdered. Oh. <laughs> oh <laughs> this it's like every time dude you just you write the darkest thing available to you every time <laughs> he's like ah inspiration <laughs> <laughs> murder <laughs> murder remember that time i nearly died <laughs> if only they'd followed through <laughs> I swear to god, this guy could be handed a Dr. Seuss book and it'd be like, Horton like feels the thrill of mortality. Like, no, no. <laughs> this is not... I would stab me on a plane. I would stab me on a train. <laughs> I would stab me here or there. I would stab me everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the story likewise symbolically expressed the idea that his listlessness was in fact the result of extended peacetime, fitting with the growing theme in Mishima's work that expressed a conviction that it was the constant peace and the lack of a mortal threat, a feeling of danger that was stifling him and making him feel dead inside. Is he saying that he needs, like, war to put hair on his chest? Like, come on, dude. <laughs> I mean, he actually did have an extremely hairy chest that he was very proud of. That's true. I've seen a lot of photos. <laughs> I didn't include it in my notes, but he was he was incredibly proud and he wanted you to know. <laughs> this man has a lot of photos. If you Google this man, you're going to find a lot of pictures of him in a banana hammock just completely oiled up. It's, it's a lot. <laughs> it is startling. It's not what you think of when you think of like multiple Nobel nominated author. That's not what comes to mind. 
It was he was like a quiet literary figure, very serious, and almost constantly naked in front of a camera. <laughs> he had an interesting way of dealing with his insecurities about his body. <laughs> he had layers, Jessica. Like an onion. <laughs> an greased homoerotic, up. <laughs> greased up, hungry to be sliced onion. <laughs> Such an upsetting combination of words. <laughs> Uh, he just wants you to chop him up and saute him in some oil. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a lot to ask, yes. It's very illegal when you're a person and not an onion. <laughs> At the same time, while Mishima's minor works that he put relatively less care into, into remained as popular as ever, the audience for his more major works were notably stagnating. Likewise, he had been sued for breach of privacy by a former ambassador he had based a novel on and lost, and the theater company he regularly produced with objected to derogatory descriptions of mainland China in his upcoming play and rejected it, despite the fact it was already being practiced by the acting troupe. Oof. This deep trough in his, politi- in his professional life was proportionately matched by a cheery, highly sociable period in his personal life, where he became known as an exceptional host, inviting to play court a complex array of guests both quotidian and celebrity. Mishima tended to wear a white tuxedo at these parties and became progressively manic as the night wore on, apparently including singing, celebrity imitations, and pretending to be a dog barking at a cat. I'm just picturing, like, a suicidal Japanese Lumiere singing Be Our Guest. (laughs) It's a lot. There's a lot happening in Uh, my head right now. (laughs) I will emphasize that he was sober at these. (laughs) He doesn't drink. (laughs) But he knows how to have a good time. Uh, He doesn't need there to be a party. He is the party. He's got a white tux on. Anywhere he goes is a party. He's already having a fun time. It's like back in university where in order to indicate that I was enjoying myself, I would just wear two hats at all times. A complex signaling system like a ship pulling into harbor. You can't possibly be having a bad time if you're wearing two hats, Janelle. You are clearly Mr. Fun. (laughs) Jessica's flying the fun flag. (laughs) Uh... In uh, 1967, after a year of trying and through unknown means, Mishima finally gets the Japanese Self-Defense Force to allow him to take a 46-day-long enrollment, uh, cycling through the various different forms of basic training for different disciplines under the Army umbrella under the name of Hiraoka Kimitake. So he's just going to go learn, like, Army Jiu-Jitsu under a fake name for, like, a month and a half. No, it's his real name. Oh, that was his real name. That's right. That's right. I forgot he had a pen name. Yeah, yeah. His his pen name's the one he goes o- under most of his life. But whenever he's signing a blood oath or starting a cult, he goes by Kimitake once more. Yeah, I think it was it meant to show sincerity, but it was also meant to disguise the fact that he was doing it at all. Right, so he's gonna go learn military martial arts for like a month and a half. There's no way that this is gonna send him even further off balance. Uh, The 42-year-old Mishima undoubtedly physically suffered, but nonetheless kept up with the other trainees in their late adolescence. He delighted in being punished and made made to run laps and sent beaming boyish letters to his parents. 
You just know that he was weird about the whole thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Some teenage boy having to hit this dude over and over as he moans. Like, you just know it was, you know he made it weird. Have I been naughty? Have I failed to fully perform my duties? Make me scrub the toilet with my toothbrush. Make me run another lap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just some poor 18-year-old boy. He's just screaming harder, harder as the guy's, like, <laughs> flipping him. It's not. <sighs> that would be a lawsuit today. Like <laughs> The entire co- trainee corps quits because they feel like... <laughs> They're feeling harassed by the fact that he keeps getting hard during drills. <laughs> he had infinite money to make this happen. Like, he, I'm sure there's cheaper, less exhausting ways to do it, but he, he wanted the full experience. Mishima had developed a friendship with two neo-nationalist students, Bandai and Nakasuji, who were looking for a sponsor to fund their magazine, The Controversy Journal. Oh, that's edgy teenage stuff. Uh, he later had a falling out with the students of the magazine after he discovered that they had used his name without permission to solicit financial support from an elite right-wing leader Mishima was likewise on the outs with. Oh. But they were some of his earliest recruits into his next project and helped introduce him to a broader network of right-wing students sympathetic to his vision. Hmm. This is all sounding healthy. <laughs> <laughs> the object of Mishima's obsession was not only the divinity and rule of the emperor, but likewise Article 9 of the American written Japanese constitution, which banned Japan from having a standing military, which Mishima saw as limiting the ever-euphemistic Japanese defense forces from developing into an effective army and tool of defense. Mishima recruited 23 of these young men into joining him as volunteers for the for JSDF training, including tactics lessons he specifically arranged, after which he would style them as officers in his new army, called the Japanese National Guard, later to be voted the Tetenokai, or Shield Society, Mishima's suggested name. This all just sounds like teenage militant Scientology. I don't know. It's... <laughs> Uh, you know, when you get famous, you know, you start getting bored with the wine, women, and photographs, and you just start to side your own paramilitary organization. <laughs> you just start teaching tactics to teenage boys in your basement like this. It's fine. <laughs> you know, if Lady Gaga ever gets bored of, 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 of singing for the, for the powerful and great of society, I think she should just, you know, take up jujitsu and start her own army. It's... <laughs> That's, what else is there? You know, there's nothing left to do. <laughs> if Terry Crews wanted to shape me in, and mold me into the ultimate warrior, I'd probably go with it. That's fair. I would 100% sign up for the Terry Crews army. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even have to know what it's for. <laughs> you know we're going to be, like, I'm here and I'm going to- I love that man and I'm going to die for him. <laughs> <laughs> Just Jessica casually pledging her life to Terry Crews. It's a normal person thing to do. If he can teach me how to twitch my pecs as well as he can his, I will die for that man. <laughs> this is like a pseudo-fascist, ultra-right-wing Neverland ranch. Like, the whole thing <laughs> is... It's just... Te- these are teenagers, right? Like, these are... Uh, early 20s, most of them. Some of okay. them are in their very late teens. They're university students. 
They're youths. And he's, what, 42? Yes. <laughs> still weird. He he's in his he's in his early 40s at this point. It's still weird to have a clubhouse full of teenage boys. It's mm. <laughs> <laughs> Like I don't know if there's ever an age where that's appropriate, but this is definitely not it. <laughs> it's all a little strange. If everyone involved here was 10 years old, this would be charming, as <laughs> is not so much. It would be adorable. It would be like a secret club where no girls were allowed and they handed out cootie shots. They didn't try to stage a coup of their country. <laughs> uh, Mishima even wrote them a fight song and eventually ordered them designer uniforms for both summer and winter. Uh, in February 1968, uh, they signed a blood oath to defend the culture of the fatherland by violence if necessary. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, him and 11 students. Uh, meanwhile, these poor soldiers just think some rich, famous weirdo has decided to give them free recruitment drives. <laughs> it's like ultra-nationalist Boy Scouts. Like, <laughs> do they have merit badges? Like, what is this? Uh, you get like you get one for sewing, one for uh, one for katana sharpening, and one for pledging allegiance to the emperor <laughs> until death. <laughs> If these were if this was an after school program for troubled youth, you'd have gotten awards for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like he he is teaching them things, you know, like he's getting them in shape, he's getting them active uh, in in public volunteering. It seems very wholesome if you don't know what it's for. <laughs> yeah, if it had never come to anything, it would be sort of adorable, but it it did. Yeah, that that fine line between eccentric and horrifying really comes when you try to invade an act like an active army base. Yeah, they went <laughs> they went right over that edge. <laughs> Full steam ahead. Mishima originally wanted an army of 10,000, but due to the fact that outside funding would have meant some level of shared decision-making or scrutiny, Mishima limited himself to a number of men he could personally finance, 100. So he downsized it a little. I mean, he's not he's not Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos could literally just field an entire mercantile army. and A fact that will surely have no consequences for all of us. He probably couldn't <laughs> take out the United States, but he could definitely take down Canada. So you gotta watch yourselves. <laughs> oh, good. I look forward to seeing that play out in my lifetime. <laughs> Wonderful. I, for one, welcome our new Lex Luthor Light Overlord. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, he's the only man who sells me sweater vests in my size at demand. <laughs> what is liberty if you don't have overnight shipping on sweater vests? I mean, sure. <laughs> he tortures his workers and makes them makes makes middle-aged women shit themselves in the middle middle of their shifts just for the sake of getting you your dildo faster. <sighs> Here's the thing, Janelle. There is not a Walmart within 10 kilometers of me. I live in the middle of Vancouver. Everything around me is a trendy boutique that sells size zero clothing for $3,000 to tiny Japanese women. And nothing fits me. <laughs> we, we live in a perfectly failed state. <laughs> Nobody sells pants in my size in city limits. <laughs> Why don't you just go to a second hand store? The second hand stores in Vancouver 
also cost too much money, and they also don't sell anything in my size. <laughs> Just Jessica sitting on a park bench, furiously sewing four size zero pants together like she's mending a sail. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a hefty gal from the prairies. <laughs> <laughs> I need pants in corn-fed sizes. <laughs> I'm not a cool Asian hipster, Janelle. I need space for my ass. <laughs> <laughs> Point me to the birthing hip section. <laughs> I, I need you to imagine me a hundred years ago. With a baby on one hip and a calf on the other, and I need you to tell me where the larges are. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, this. Oh. <laughs> I will stop using Amazon when someone can sell me underwear that doesn't rip the moment I try, try to pull it over my knees. <laughs> I want to stop using it so badly, and yet... I would love to. <laughs> I dearly would. But I, I need to not go commando. <laughs> I just need to not be naked. <laughs> and I think, I think that's a, that is a gift that I have given to humanity. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Metro Vancouver area. I could have not worn clothes. I'm immune to the cold. I won't die of exposure too quick, but you know what? I covered my ass, and I did it for you. <laughs> for you, society. For you! I'll take my order of Canada now, please. <laughs> if, if, if I ever wore booty shorts, Queen Elizabeth would fall. <laughs> You'd make the news. I'd make the news. <laughs> Civilization as we knew, know it would crumble. If they had Juicy across the ass, humanity would be extinct within the hour. <laughs> but in, uh, in other news, in late 1968, Mishima was passed over for the Nobel Literature Prize for the third time in place of his longtime mentor, Kawabata Yasunari, who Mishima immediately and warmly congratulated. The Tatanokai would meet on a monthly basis and train in the summer, steadily recruiting all the while. And notably, he is still writing at this point, including indoctrination and philosophy pamphlets expressing his own oh. way of the warrior and a fair amount of emperor-worshipping gibberish that he wrote for his trainees, which he also published as a collection in order to continue funding them. Oh. Well, it's hard to squeeze in a novel when you're, you know... Busy. Oh no, he's squeezing in <laughs> multiple novels during this time. They're just ultranationalist. No, 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 he's got oh, novels. Just as regular. Well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this yeah. man is versatile. He's got time. <laughs> no, like he has long form novels that he's publishing uh, you know, every year. Uh he also has serialized novels that he's publishing just constantly. Uh and now he's also publishing these collections of quote unquote philosophy. I feel like he's being prolific at me. Like, this feels like a personal attack now. <laughs> he is, like, obnoxiously productive. I <laughs> don't want to kill myself a thousandth as much as he does. And he is still motoring. 
He's lapping me. Yeah, like, you should not be able to be this full of suicidal ideation and unbelievable drive. Like, I thought thought (laughs) wanting to kill yourself would, like, sapped your motivation. Not increased it exponentially. Like, he's a machine. Like, this is... He's unstoppable. incredible. If he had not killed himself, his, his novels would start have been produced at such an exponential rate they would have drowned humanity by the year 1985. <laughs> they would have lapped the earth. Like <laughs> He would have taken out the Brazilian rainforest well before their time. He would have sped global warming by decades. <laughs> and he's apparently at the same time like still a fairly attentive family man. No one in his family is super concerned, as far as I can tell. Like, he's still a pretty solid, like, husband and father. He's home every night. Writing ultra-nationalist pamphlets in the basement in some sort of fugue state. It's fine. (laughs) He's making it work. Work Work-life balance. It is astounding how much this man is getting done in a day. I have... Zero children, zero wives, and zero paramilitary troopers, and I have written no novels uh, <laughs> that I'm aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Just Jessica wandering the states, the streets of Vancouver at night, writing novels <laughs> in a fugue state. It's possible, but possible, not probable, but very possible. His philosophical publications got a critical drubbing, some accusing him of logical incoherence and others a slow slide towards dangerous fascist thinking. Everyone's a critic. The likely reality was that his logic was incoherent because it was essentially insincere. To quote Mishima himself, I have very little reason, really. I simply chose communism as an opponent because I needed an opponent to provoke me to action. With a largely communist student group, Zen Kyoto, occupied Tokyo University's Yasuda Hall, he spoke of them admiringly. Then, when they were driven out by riot police without a single student throwing themselves out a window, he was harshly critical of their lack of conviction. Oh. Oh, he was on board up until they didn't die? Essentially. Oh. Like, for Mishima, it's not about the left-wing threat or the right-wing cause. It's about a fantasy of self-destruction and dying the death of a hero. Of giving the end of his life a satisfying narrative arc that matches his own personal aesthetic. This guy just wanted to be an anime hero. Yes! (laughs) Here's the thing, I didn't put this in, but, like, he loved manga, specifically boxing manga. And he all, he was also part of a UFO society. That is entirely aside, but I feel like it's important. <laughs> I love it. This guy's just doing side quests. Like, he's just been level grinding <laughs> constantly, just churning out literature after, like, literature pamphlet after literature pamphlet. And he's just finally decided to take out the end boss. <laughs> like... <laughs> He just wants a reason to throw himself on his proverbial sword. That's (laughs) literally a rebel without a cause. Most of Mishima's pseudo-fascist rantings have some weird intrusions by from his focus on beauty and aesthetics, often in direct relations to the idea of choosing to die. 
all of which went over the heads of his recruits, who were unfamiliar with his heavily suicidal literature for the most part, as Mishima specifically avoided recruiting literary-minded youths. Like, they're not stupid, but they're very simple and straightforward, mostly straight boys. He doesn't want the bookish types. <laughs> there is, however, an odd truth in Mishima's faux nationalism, which is probably what drew his followers to his cause. Namely, the quite reasonable fear that Japan's unique identity and culture were being subsumed and subordinated by outsiders who had never learned to value it as well as rejected by Japanese people who had internalized the enforced superiority of the West. I mean, it's a legit complaint. <laughs> it's a legit concern. Like, the Japanese Constitution, their founding legal document, was drafted almost entirely by American lawyers under command by General MacArthur, with little input or alteration from the Japanese themselves. Yeah, it's a big issue that's kind of buried under a lot of oiled-up mankini photos. <laughs> And, and there's just something deeply contrary about the idea of enforced democracy in general. Yeah. Like, I think it's a great form of form of government, but it's weird to make people have it. <laughs> Presumably, you just want to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a lesson we didn't learn anything from at all. No, no, the Americans have never learned this lesson. Ever. We're gonna bomb some democracy into you. Yeah, it's been the overarching theme of the 21st century <laughs> thus far. <laughs> we, 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 they, they started the century as they meant to go on, Janelle. Start strong. Oddly, this is simultaneously one of his happiest times. He finds the young men he recruits exhausting in how serious and naive and unbelievably heterosexual they all are. But he is likewise treated not as a sickly child, a pathetic weakling, or a famous and respectable author, but a brother in arms. The boys under his command are constantly calling and showing up to his house without warning to talk to him until he creates a specific slot of open hours to see them in a rented floor at a coffee shop every Wednesday from 3 to 5. Oh, he's got fascism office hours. <laughs> One must have boundaries when one's attempting a coup. <laughs> they were quite simple, straightforward young men, and he treated them with a fatherly affection that bled out elsewhere in his life. As much as his death wish is deeply eroticized in his own mind, his relationship with the bright-eyed young fascist he was using to achieve it was almost wholesome. Uh, but I do, I do say almost wholesome. Because oh, no. during the short existence of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Society, Mishima appointed two captains and had ambiguous but intense relationships with both. The first was uh, Mochimaro Hiroshi, one of Mishima's earliest recruits. Mochimaro left the Tatanokai as part of the schism with Bandai and Natsuji after Mishima requested that he leave their journal. Mishima had likewise opposed Mochimaro's upcoming wedding, though he relented and offered to financially support Mo both Mochimaro and his new wife in an attempt to make him stay. Mishima was apparently devastated, even bereaved, by Mochimaro's departure. Interesting. Yeah, Mishima then appointed to Mochimaru's position a second-wave recruit named Morita Masakatsu, 
a chubby-cheeked and painfully sincere young man that Mishima paid special attention and frequently took out to dinner and the theater alongside his wife. He would introduce Morita to his friend, saying, I have pledged my life to the Emperor, and Morita has pledged his life to me. Remember him. He's the one who will kill me. Oh! Less wholesome. Nope. Yeah! (laughs) That's where it gets weird. (laughs) Morita absolutely worshipped Mishima, and even wrote a letter to him declaring his willingness to die for him. Nope. All of these relationships could have been so great if they were just, like, 15% less intense. Like, it's like, oh, he's mentoring, like, a young man through kind of, like, a very difficult period in their country's history, and he's listening to their ideas. And then, no, he's just introducing him to famous people, being like, this kid's gonna kill me someday, and I'm into it. Like, nope, too much. Good on you, too sport. Too much, where I draw the line. <laughs> that, that was the line, and we just crossed it. <laughs> If a professor of mine in college had told me, like, and this is the student who will disembowel me someday, I would have left a very unfavorable rate my prof review. <laughs> yeah, that man is not getting a spicy jalapeno pepper. Too spicy. Too spicy. That is going to be the most ambivalent review of my life. <laughs> yeah, too spicy. Don't like yeah. it that spicy. You know, there's a lot of rumors after afterwards that like this had been some kind of like lovers mutual suicide or something like that. But to be very clear, there is no evidence that he had any physical relationship with either of these two men. None. They're just some kids he's mentoring into ultranationalist violence. It's it's wholesome. He's weirdly emotionally intense about them and they return the favor, especially Marita, but like there there's no obvious sexuality to it. No sex, just death. Just death. <laughs> and sure, the death is also sex, <laughs> but that's 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 less relevant. <laughs> Uh, October 21st, anti-war day, always brought on large-scale demonstrations, particularly in the lead-up to the renewal of the Mutual Defense Treaty in 1960 and 1970. In October 1968, Mishima had dressed himself as a reporter in order to get a better look at the demonstrations. He followed a large wave, the wave of largely student demonstrators, noting down instances of violence on little cue cards he had. When the crowd gathered at the Prime Minister's residence, Mishima went across the street to the foreign office, where his brother worked, to get a better view. Joining Chiyuki in the cafeteria, dressed in a storm jacket, riot helmet, and press armband. Mm. He had packed with him a bento box and ate it while excitedly watching the action down below. He packed a lunch. Chiyuki viewed his brother's new obsession as a kind of boyish game he had never been allowed to participate in as a child, and his brother's interest in politics as something that was necessarily shallow because Mishima avoided a deeper understanding that would have stood in the way of the fantasy. It kind of sounds like when a kid wears, like, a fire helmet to a parade. Like, he's just really excited about all of this, guys. Yeah, yeah, he's he's having a blast planning his suicide. (laughs) I mean, nobody else realizes that that's what he's doing. They think he's just having a great time watching the festivities. No, they they just think he's having a ball. And, like, in, in that circumstance, like, why would they be concerned? 
he's he's just he's having a little outing. He's dressed for the job he wants. You know? <laughs> not definitely not the job he has, because this is not a job. <laughs> Stop dressing. Nationalist violence? No. Stop not dressing generally. like a military dictator. You're a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, neither of those things comes with health insurance, but. <laughs> uh, one of them pays slightly better, but only if you're successful. <laughs> yeah. Actually, no. Both of them pay pretty well, but only if you're successful. Otherwise, they pay very poorly. That's the rule of novelists and military dictatorships. We're not entirely different, Janelle. There's there's connective tissue there. (laughs) Both have an overestimation of their abilities. (laughs) And a certain emotional instability, for the most part. (laughs) In fact, I... I, I, I don't think it's completely an accident that Hitler was a failed artist. If I'm being fully honest. Oof. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Reverse, Jessica. Reverse. Back off from the political commentary. Get out of there. Beep, beep, beep. We need to make a three-point turn. <laughs> <laughs> too spicy, Jessica. Too, too spicy. Too, muy caliente. <laughs> muy, muy caliente. No es bueno. <laughs> uh, in May 1969, the then Kyoto challenged Mishima to a debate at the Komaba campus of the University of Tokyo, which Mishima accepted b- despite the Zen Kyoto's proven willingness to take hostages. Mishima forbade the Tatanokai from joining him and likewise declined a police escort. He wore under his shirt a haramaki, a type of traditional Japanese armor made out of tightly woven cotton to turn aside the blade of a potential assassin, uh, which I don't think is as effective as just not going to a place where you might get stabbed. Well, that's no fun, is it? (laughs) No fun at all. Uh, He came to the auditorium of 2,000 students alone. While many students heckled Mishima throughout, most gave him a great deal of respect, perhaps despite themselves, including one poor fellow who accidentally called Mishima sensei. Aww. (laughs) Both sides of the debate were essentially logically incoherent, but I'd say it was something of an impressive attempt at discourse between partisans of diametrically opposing ideologies regardless. A commendable effort, I suppose. Just angry men yelling nonsense at each other. There, There's a reason why I'm not going to summarize the heart of the debate, and it's because I respect your intelligence too much. <laughs> Good time was had by all. This is inane and insane. It's just like when American news gathers up all of the like most extreme people they can find. And then just gives them an open floor to yell at each other. Yeah. Like, this isn't productive. Nobody's getting anything out of this. Why are we doing this? Uh, I've never been able to watch an American-style panel show without breaking out in hives. It's, it's just people yelling at each other. <laughs> literally just yelling. You can't follow it at all. You know what the difference between like the Housewives of Beverly Hills and the average CNN panel show? It's just that one group <laughs> is wearing slightly nicer jewelry. <laughs> my parents have sort of like dubbed me like expert in all things American because I lived there for three years. And like my dad was watching a CNN panel where it was just, they'd just gotten a bunch of people who'd 
had ex- very extreme ideas who were screaming at each other. And my dad just turns to me and is like, why did they do this? Why did the Americans do this, Janelle? I'm like, I, I don't have any answers. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not informative. It's barely entertainment. Like, if they're going to be this angry, someone should at least get hit with a chair. Like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, there are more coherent plots in WWE wrestling. <laughs> and they are more interesting and they are more emotionally resonant. <laughs> I have anxiety issues and every time I, I can't even watch them for 15 seconds before I just have to leave the room. <laughs> like, it's just so stressful. <laughs> the secondhand cringe is too much. Like, I would rather watch somebody get a finger chopped off in a mob movie. <laughs> <laughs> I understand the philosophy of it. It's like, oh, you want to bring together disparate viewpoints. But, like, if you want to have a reasonable political debate, you pick a guy from side A who has a reasonable opinion and a guy from side B who also has a reasonable opinion, not two of the most insane human beings on the planet to sit down together in suits and then scream into each other's face like Chewbacca just got his dick stuck in his fly. Just... (laughs) (laughs) That description will haunt me forever. (laughs) (laughs) Why, Jessica, why? Uh... Things go in my brain, and I can't control the order in which they come out. <laughs> but the the account of the debate was published, and both the Zen Kyoto and Mishima received royalties, which Mishima used to buy some snappy summer uniforms. Uh, but Mishima's hypothesis was that when anti-war day came again in October 1969, In the lead-up to the renewal of the Mutual Defense Agreement with the United States, the surge in far-left violence would overwhelm conventional police forces, and the JSDF would be forced to call in the auxiliaries such as the Tatenokai, thereby proving the necessity of amending the Constitution to allow for a Japanese military. Because that's how life works. That's how (laughs) politics works. But when the riot police handled the demonstrators with ease... Rita made another suggestion, namely occupying the national diet that is the Japanese legislature, not the Japanese like sushi and rice. <laughs> like we're we're not we're not talking about sashimi here. We're talking about like the 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 place where they parliament. We're talking about parliament. That's <laughs> basically Japanese parliament. This is their version of Congress. It is not it is not sashimi. <laughs> it is so this is literally, this is literally just a bunch of right wing nationalists storming the Capitol because they want to change the Constitution. <laughs> yes, this is all feeling very familiar. T- to be honest, I did not intend that. Like I've been talking about this for like <laughs> like like months, months. I've been talking about this. Ages. And like I finally got to it on my list Ages. in like early January. I'm just like, oh man, after this one and Janelle's next one, I'm gonna do Mishima. And then like I did not expect this to be prescient. And this has been happening a lot for <laughs> both of us. Are we psychic, Janelle? Are we predicting the future? Please God, I hope not. 
Like, I hope I do not have the gift of prophecy because everything I think about is deeply fucked up and absurd. And if you have the gift of prophecy, well, then a lot of people are going to go missing. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. I was like, we're all going to disappear. <laughs> I'm like, we are too morbid to be, gi- to be given the <laughs> access to the secret. <laughs> <laughs> Especially without being informed first, because I would have been a lot more careful about my choice of topic. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't wield this responsibly. <laughs> Much like Mishima himself, my fantasies should not become reality. <laughs> I am too dark yeah. and obsessed with death. It's it's too much responsibility for me. It's 9 p.m. here, and the only thing I've eaten today was a Terry's chocolate orange I got in my Christmas stocking a month ago. <laughs> I can't be trusted to make choices. <laughs> I'm not ready for anything the world is bringing to me, because I am filled with questionable Easter candy and maybe a burrito. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's all I've got. We are both filled with temporally inappropriate chocolate and shame. (laughs) It's just seasonal goodies and shame. That's it. Mishima agreed to this plan to rush the legislature and demand revision of Article 9. And he and Morita secretly gathered a small group of the most trusted members of the Tetanokai to discuss and enact the plan. The first was Koga Masayoshi. 22, known as Chibi Koga, both for the fact that his last name was written with the character for Little, and because he was 4 feet 11 tall. <laughs> he would be the driver. Aww, little guy. Oh, he's so small. That is tiny by Japanese teenager standards. <laughs> he's little. Aww. And he also apparently had just a really good sense of humor about it. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> You gotta. <laughs> it's it's crippling if you don't. You can't be both an elf and sensitive. <laughs> no, you really have to pick one. You either like learn to laugh at it or it destroys you. The second was Ogawa Masahiro, also 22, a close friend of Morita. And the last was Koga Hiro- Hiroyashu, 23, no relation to the previous Koga, and known as Furukoga. And he was all likewise a skilled practitioner of kendo. They're all just sort of too adorable to be doing this. This sounds like... Oh, I looked at their pictures. They're babies. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds like an Ocean's Eleven heist. Like, this is just too cute. They're just a bunch of adorable, like, tiny right-wing Japanese kids who've just been hanging out at, like, weird militaristic summer camp. And now they're gonna take down the Japanese government? It escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah, like, in particular, like, looking at Morita, like, he he has the fattest little cheeks. I want to pinch oh. him. <laughs> He's adorable. He's too pinchable to storm the capital. He's too adorable to try to overtake the democratically elected government. He's so cute. <laughs> He's much more cute than Buffalo Head Guy. QAnon <laughs> Shaman can only dream of the day when he's this adorable. Oh, God. <laughs> 
But they do, they sound like kind of like a ragtag group of misfits that you'd get from like, I'm gonna age myself, from like a movie where the characters from Recess storm the government. Like, it's... What was it? Like, it, it's it's like one of those, like, you know, the hard-done underdog sports team that gets a new coach, like, centric <laughs> the coach. Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks. That whips them into shape. The Bad News Bears, all the things. The Bad that, News like, Bears. Stranger it, Things storms the government. <laughs> except it's like a weird gay novelist in his 40s who's ready to die. <laughs> <sighs> With, like, four teenagers. Like, what was the plan here? <laughs> I mean, I will I will emphasize, all of these kids are in their 20s, but they still very much feel like kids to me. People are children till they're, like, 32. I stand by this. <laughs> like, they're not adults. I'm 30 and I'm not an adult. It's this dude in his 40s who... Like, again, I can't emphasize this enough, is in a mankini covered in baby oil on the cover of the pamphlet that he wrote about this. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm not making any of this up. And he's going to take down the Japanese government with, like, four random college students. He's barely got enough people to take the court in a basketball game. Like, this is not, you don't have enough people to do this. And he knew it. Like, the Tatanokai were too small of a force to possibly take c- take control of the Diet Building, and they couldn't necessarily rely on the JSDF to support them. Instead, Mishima and his lieutenants would enter a JSDF base take the high- and take the highest-ranking official there hostage, then announce their p- intention to the troops once assembled with the hope that a significant number of the rank and file would join them. It's such a bad plan. Like, you need to remember that the two oldest people involved here are 45 and 25, and one of them is Mishima Yukio. (laughs) (laughs) If Stephen King stormed the Capitol with four college students, people would have... I mean, he's in his 70s, but we would have questions. We would all have questions when a critically acclaimed author storms the government with nothing but four youths and a sword... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it makes you pay attention. I, I would be watching the news. <laughs> I'd keep an eye on that. Yeah, I mean, like, it takes a lot in this. I'm so jaded at this point. Like... <laughs> Dead inside. Like, 9-11 <laughs> happened when I was, like, t- like when I was 11. The 2008 crisis happened when I was 18. I have just hardened as a human being. I don't, you need, you need a lot of freakish, aberrant news, news for me to pay attention more than half an hour a day. This would get my attention. (laughs) All the most interesting seasons of the news have aired in my lifetime. (laughs) But while the original plan may have been for all of them to commit seppuku, should the plan fail, Mishima eventually balked and instructed Ogawa and the two Kogas to ensure the safety of the hostage and submit to arrest so they might ex- explain the spirit of the Tatanokai's mission. They were resistant, but acceded to the request. Morita, however, refused, and insisted that he should die alongside Mishima. Mishima attempted repeatedly to dissuade him, but to no avail. At the same time, Mishima was putting his affairs in order, transferring the rights to 
his works to his family members, canceling long-term projects, meeting colleagues for one last dinner together, and abruptly calling up friends to talk and reminisce before bidding them farewell rather than the habitual see you soon. This didn't alarm anybody? <laughs> like, they, they probably should have been more alarmed than they were. This guy has been writing about suicide since he's had, like, pubic hair. This guy has been obsessed with this his whole lifetime. I mean, part of it was, I think, that a lot of the people closest to him assumed that he wouldn't do anything serious until the end of the tetralogy had been working on. But they didn't know a very important thing, namely that he had already finished it. He had finished it over a year ahead of his announced schedule. And he was such a regular person and so dedicated to his art, I don't think anybody thought that he would kill himself before he finished his current projects. And insofar as he was still working on them, hypothetically, and he was still going into his office to write, they didn't question it. I mean, and also he's such such a such a weird person like that's true like he's been through so many weird phases at this point like he's kind of reached like boy who cried wolf status yeah like he's always been talking about death and like yeah like he's been talking about death since he was 14 like he's been like ostentatiously flamboyantly suicidal since all of these people have known him (laughs) yeah this isn't even unusual for him like He just has these fits where he decides to become, like, white tuxedo party man or, like, movie star man slapping the shit out of an actress. Like, he's just, he's been an eccentric man. Yeah, all the way through. In the public eye forever. And he doesn't really confide that deep of feelings with people. Like, after his death, like, the people around him, like, a lot of them were very reluctant to talk about him because despite the fact they, like, he made them feel like they knew him, they found out that they really just didn't. One f- one friend that he took to dinner, Date, who worked at the Japanese Broadcasting Corporation, reported that during their last dinner, Mishima suddenly asked him if it would be possible to broadcast him committing seppuku live. Oh. Date ir- initially took this as serious before Mishima followed it with a laugh. I mean, as far as red flags go, that one's pretty red. <laughs> oh, it's pretty serious. But if for the redder flag, uh, mid-September 1970, Mishima posed for a series of photographs to be published under the name Death of a Man. Uh, Mishima designed the scenes, including one of him drowning, one with a hatchet in his head, one of him beneath the wheel of a cement truck, and one of him as St. Sebastian, sensually riddled with arrows. Uh, They even jokingly took shots where Mishima commits seppuku with copious amounts of theater blood as the photographer Shinoyama uh, Kishin stands behind him with a sword as Kaishaku, the samurai's second, who would behead him after the disembowelment was completed to spare him unnecessary pain that might cause him to lose his composure and dishonor himself. There's a lot there. (laughs) Yeah, like, apparently the photographer just felt real weird about it after his death. (laughs) It's it's a deep well of weird. It's a rich font of weird. (laughs) It's it's all... It's a bit much. (laughs) 
if you kill yourself shortly after getting a dude to take multiple photographs of you dying beneath a cement truck, <laughs> like it's even for the most like flamboyant person in my life, I'd be like, this is a bit much. Like this is this is our like come to Jesus moment. Like this is this is too much. <laughs> this is morbid. And like speaking for myself, like. I can take morbid. This is morbid. <laughs> I have I have loved and dated some artistic people in my life, but if any of them had tromped through the living room with a thing of cooking oil in one hand and a whole skein of arrows in the other, to be like BRB, like put some sheets down on the couch, <laughs> I would have had some thoughts. Just putting some rubber sheeting on the couch, splaying himself out full of arrows. I yeah. Mm. It's a lot. Mishima and the Tetanokai lieutenant spent two days rehearsing in a room at the Palace Hotel in view of the Imperial Palace. They likewise wrote traditional poems normally reserved for when a samurai approaches death. On the evening of the 24th, Mishima phoned two reporters, Date and Tokuoka, asking them where he might reach them between 10 and 10.05 the next morning. Very specific. Here's the thing. If someone asks me where I'm going to be at 10 between 10 and 10:05 the next morning cuz they need to make another phone call to me, that's incredibly weird. Uh Yeah. And like he he specifically does that so that like he can give them the information at a later date without them asking questions. It's to keep them from being considered liable. He's trying to keep them from seeming guilty uh, or putting them in a position where they have to choose between respecting his privacy and reporting him to the cops, essentially. I mean, you gotta call the cops. Like, this is... You you have to call the cops on this. (laughs) If you know this is happening, like, you gotta. Like, I appreciate that he didn't try to rope innocent people into an attempted coup slash public suicide, but... Dude... (laughs) come the morning he would ask them to meet him in the lobby of the Ichigaya Kaiken next to the base at 11am where the rest of the Tatanokai would be meeting he then dedicated himself to writing final letters one concerning how he wanted his final novels to be translated while the others were mostly notes to loved ones one note was to his intelligence officer Izawa Kanemaro uh, instructing him that he wanted his body dressed in a Tetanokai uniform with sword and white gloves, and requested that he take a photo to prove that he had died as a warrior rather than a literary man. The morning of November 25th, the Tetanokai lieutenants arrived at, arrived at Mishima's home in a white 1966 sedan at 10.15. Mishima met them in uniform with one long sword and two short swords in a case. He gave Chibi Koga an envelope containing 90,000 yen for lawyer's fees and a letter claiming total responsibility for what was about to happen. Ooh. Like, he really thought of everything. He, he really tied up every loose end. He's just, he's so incredibly precise in this. It's just like, think of all the things he could have done if he put all of this energy and talent and organizational capability into literally anything else. Like, anything. This guy could have done anything with his life. (laughs) 
And, and he sort of, he, had, he did a lot with his life. He did. He did. For a man who died in his mid-40s, he did so much. But it's like, you could have, like, left, let it go for another 30 years before you stormed the Capitol. Right, like, it's going so well. Keep going. Don't quit now. <laughs> like... You could have world peace done in 10 years if you just actually learned how politics works. <laughs> like, you're a writer, dude. Writers don't peak until... You could have been prime minister. That's just it. It's like, dude, you're not past your prime. You're a novelist. <laughs> like... Yeah. You can keep going forever. <laughs> Lead that Stephen King life. He's still doing great. And he's never yeah. stormed the Capitol. Yeah. You know, the Cujo wasn't the end for him. <laughs> Not even that time he got hit by a truck. <laughs> he just kept going like the Energizer Bunny. I don't even think the Energizer Bunny's still a thing, but he kept going regardless. And Stephen King was not even a fraction as ripped as this guy, so, you know, who no. knows what he could have done. He just took it. Mm -hmm. Mishima was a tiny man, but I bet he could have gotten hit by a truck. <laughs> just to feel alive? I mean, I... I... Then, he, then he would have written something weird and homoerotic about it. <laughs> it would have been inspiration. I would have welcomed it. After arriving at the Ichigaya base at 10.50... They were shown to the office of the of Commandant Masuda. After introductions, General Masuda complimented the smartness of their uniforms, then, noticing Mishima's sword, asked if it was edged. Mishima replied that it was. The Commandant asked if the police allowed him to carry the weapon, and Mishima smiled and unsheathed the sword. He explained that it was the work of a famed swordsmith, Seke no Magoroku. Then he said, Koga, a handkerchief. Chibikoga stood and moved behind the commandant, but instead of handing Mishima a kerchief, he grabbed the commandant from behind, covering his mouth. Ogawa and Furukogo then bound his arms behind him and tied his legs to the chair. They then gagged him with the handkerchief and barricaded the door. I mean, it's the dialogue is very smooth. <laughs> this is, it's a well-written real-life coup attempt. It is. I, that was the thing that struck me about it. I'm like, it feels like this was scripted. And I think it was. Like, I'm sure Koga, but... a handkerchief, is the signal. Like, it's all planned out. I mean, not to praise right-wing attempted coups, but, like, it's so choreographed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, it's just so much more organized than what they did in Washington, D.C. Yeah, they just stormed in in their buffalo helmets. This has style. Aides in the adjoining room heard a commotion and attempted to enter. Mishima responded that they should go away or he would kill the commandant and pushed the Tetanokai's list of demands under the door. They were as follows. One, that the Eastern Division be assembled in front of the headquarters building by noon, then approximately 40 minutes away, Two, that they quietly attend a speech by Mishima, followed by brief remarks by the Tetanokai lieutenants. Three, that the other members of the Tetanokai likewise be brought to the base to listen to the speech. Four, that no interference or attack be made until 1.10. If all demands were met, they would release the commandant unharmed. Nonetheless, several junior officers attempted to push past the barricades, and seven were wounded by Morita and Mishima for their trouble. 
By 1135, a senior officer called them off and promised to assemble the division. At the lobby of the Kaiken next door, the two reporters received envelopes with an explanatory letter from one of the Tatanokai. It contained Mishima's manifesto and a memorial photograph he had taken with his lieutenants, which I think is just a nice touch. I mean, it's classy, but everybody had to be so confused. This guy is super... Like, this is not a random person walking in off the street to commit this. This is a very famous person. And and you can kind of see that they're not really taking it seriously. It feels like a publicity stunt. Like, if you told me, like, George R. R. Martin has, like, taken hostages and he's ordering people <laughs> to assemble, I'd be like, okay... Weird marketing ploy, HBO. Let's see where they're going with this. Like, I wouldn't be immediately alarmed, just confused. Because, <laughs> like, it's just, it's just such an incoherent combination of elements. Yeah, it's... The, it's And it's so scripted. Unbelievably so. Like, this is very clearly written by a man who has immersed himself in fiction to a point where it, it, it is in his every action at the <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't it wouldn't feel like something that was meant to be taken seriously like you have a no. a celebrity artist who's doing this incredibly weird thing and trying to do it as publicly as possible he's got the outfit he didn't bring a gun he brought a sword like all of this just feels theatrical and it feels anachronistic it feels out of place like he set up an appointment with the commandant he was. Th- they were supposed to be doing drills on the airbase. He came wearing a dress sword, which nobody took off of him. <laughs> no, because like, what are you gonna do with that? <laughs> yeah, what are you? What are you possibly gonna do? And like he, like he frequently came to military bases. He was just like, he was their fucking mascot. It's also 1970. Like coups with a sword are just not a thing anymore. They're bizarre. People have color TVs. We went to the moon already. Like, this was not... (laughs) This is not how things go. (laughs) This would be such an incredibly weird thing for anyone who was trying to figure out how to respond to it in real time. At 11.55, Marita emerged onto the balcony and draped it with a canvas bearing the demands. At noon, Mishima himself took the balcony and attempted to deliver a speech, though he could not he could barely be heard over the jeering of the men below and the roar of police helicopters above. Mish- <laughs> and, and they're mostly screaming things like, Get down from there! Cut it out! <laughs> like Not even just, joking here. That's what they're it's, saying. <laughs> it's like the it's really like fascism stripped down to what it is. Just a dude in a uniform yelling nonsense off a balcony. <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, that's the thing, is, like, I've, I've said that he doesn't really understand what he's talking, but he kind of does. He knows what he likes about fascism, and it's the theater, it's the pomp, the circumstance, the speeches, the uniforms. That's what most fascists like about fascism. It's the... They like feeling important. Yeah, like, he, he really gets it down to the bare essentials. Like, it's about feeling important. It's about the narrative of the moment. Like, fascism is not about ideology. It is about feelings, first and foremost. Yeah, you've got to feel powerful. You have to look powerful, feel secure. Uniforms, outward displays of strength are a big thing in fascism. Being powerful is about looking powerful. 
it's one of the reasons why fascists so dislike comedians, because they make them f- look foolish. Yeah. <laughs> so we're here for Because, like, all of this is just incredibly silly. <laughs> it is silly. If you think about it for even half a second, it's silly. Yeah, it's absurd. Every single dictator that has ever lived was absurd. <laughs> like, like, like the Kim family claimed that they don't poop. <laughs> <laughs> they raised giant rabbits for fun. Yeah, the was, defecation was below the dignity of the great leader. The whole thing is inherently absurd. Dictators are scared little boys in costumes who will kill as many people as it takes to make them feel good about their penis. Like, it's... It's such a stupid thing that so many people have died for. Every single person who has fomented a coup has an extremely weird penis that they don't want you to know about. (laughs) And you can see photos of the speech that he gave. Like, there's a lot of pictures that were taken of this. Yes, in color! Like, they tend to be depicted in black and white, but, like, if this was the 70s, they have color photos of him. But he he looks like a weird man in a costume standing on a government building, which is exactly what he is. Like, you could, you could imagine this just being part of a 70s movie. That's the quality of the uniforms. <laughs> it looks like a, it looks like a dramatization. It looks like a still. It does. He's a 40-something-year-old dude with a lot of buttons on his jacket, in a headband, making hand gestures to nobody on, like, an ugly concrete balcony of a, like, utilitarian government building in 1970s Japan. It looks as weird as it sounds. This could be a student film with one of the student's dads. It really could be. Who just got, like, a little too into it. He went too hard on the buttons, my professional opinion. There's just too many buttons. That being said, I do commend his restraint in not giving himself badges. No, that's true. He didn't give himself any medals. Just, like, white gloves and a lot of buttons. Because that's, that's, I think, the thing that divides, like, the truly, the truly gaudy dictators. Mishima has a certain elegance to what he's doing, buttons aside. (laughs) The buttons were a lot, though. He's just such an interesting man, because if you Google image search him, and I highly recommend you do, the pictures that come up are either of his, like, death speech on the balcony, promotional shots of him working out, his, like, very serious author photos, or photos from that, like, suicide shoot that we mentioned. Those are public. So, it's, like, the most incongruous group of images of the same man. <laughs> Several weeks before this, he has, like, this, this, this art installation that is everything from, like, his baby photos on, including, like, just him, like, just getting fucked up and killed in numerous ways. It's so many jarring juxtapositions. <laughs> yeah, he he's like seven people rolled into one. Like, this was not a man who had decided who he was. <laughs> you can go through. It's like, it's like the pictures off your professor's website, or it's like Mussolini cosplay, or it's like erotic arrow death photos. It's... <laughs> Yeah, like and like they're all just existing together with the same fucking face yep, attached. Yep, there was a lot going on. He had a lot but like going every, on. Every time every time I look at this, I'm just like hashtag goals. You know <laughs> He's lived. He has truly lived. 
Like, I just, I want to be this flamboyantly weird when I hit 40. <laughs> do, do life right. Do life right. Don't kill yourself, but otherwise, words to live by. <laughs> Mishima had originally planned to speak for 30 minutes, but stopped after seven, finishing alongside Morita by shouting three times, Tenehekai Banzai. Uh, which is usually translated as long live the emperor, but is actually literally closer to live 10,000 years. And that's also where, like, the, the English use of banzai comes from. Like, banzai! It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a reference to kamikaze pilots from World War II. Then suddenly, uh, Mishima retreated inside, unbuttoning his jacket, and the assembled soldiers fell silent. Mishima said, I don't think they even heard me. He then sat on the floor facing the balcony. Morita stood behind him with the long sword. Mishima then took one of the sword short swords and stabbed deeply into his own left side, drawing the blade to the right. He had intended to write the character for sword in blood in a near on a nearby pl- piece of plate paper put down precisely for that purpose, but apparently it's hard to focus when you've just stabbed yourself. It's like theatrics to the end. This guy committed. Like, this is the one place where his plan starts to fall apart. Like, I think he goes into this assuming that he's going to kill himself. Like, he assumes that it's not going to work. He knows that it's not going to work. And that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to think of him as crazy. Because what he's doing is certifiably nuts. But he himself knows that. Like, he planned this. Everything he's doing demonstrates that he knows that. (laughs) Like, this is what he intended to do. In some ways, he's, like, too aware of the realities of suicide. And in some ways, he's, like, not aware enough. Like, you're not gonna write a final goodbye in your own blood, dude. Like... It's... I mean, you only planned at one character. Still. That's somewhat realistic. You ever written a Japanese character? There's a lot that goes into it. <laughs> yeah, like, it's not It's not just, like, the letter A. <laughs> no, it's a little more complicated It's quite a bit that. more complicated. I can't do it at the best of times. Like, under ideal circumstances, I struggle. My brushwork is subpar. I, I, I know a bit of Chinese, and, like, if you asked me... To write the character for I, like, as I am. Like, I would struggle if I had a paper, like, if I just got a paper cut. (laughs) (laughs) All it would take to derail me. If if I had, like, a really itchy nose, I couldn't do it. (laughs) Never mind if I just literally spilled my guts. (laughs) Marita twice tried and failed to cut off Mishima's head. Oh! Before calling... Yeah, he, he, he fucks oh. this up immediately. He bends the sword. Oh, no. Because here's the thing. Mishima doesn't pick Morita because he's the best swordsman. Furukoga is the best swordsman. He's the kendo master. He picks Morita because he, like, on some level, loves him. Like, he's right. a very dear friend of his. But he's not the right choice for this. And this is a very complicated thing to do. Mo- even most people who've practiced kendo have never actually tried to cut off a limb. I hope not. And I assume that it's way more difficult to do than a person would think. 
So he, he tries twice. He fails twice. And then he calls for Furukoga, who takes the sword and beheads Mishima cleanly. One stroke. <laughs> I feel like that completely undermines the goal of eliminating unnecessary suffering. <laughs> In the Japanese like sadomasic tradition, you don't want to cut the guy's head off too quickly. Because you want to allow him the honor of having accepted death and pain. But you also don't want him, like, fucking crying on the floor. No. <laughs> That's undignified. But this is only... Also horrendous. You don't want to stand there sawing at him. Like, that's not dignified <laughs> at all. It don't just come at this like a bread knife. Cut his head off. <laughs> oh, my God. Really, uh, really takes away from some of the uh, the aesthetic he was going for. Like it, It's like the moment Mishima is not fully controlling every action, that's when things go sideways. Maria then knelt himself and committed seppuku, with Furukogo once more beheading him. Just traumatizing some young men, you know. There's no way having beheaded two people is gonna mess that kid up for the rest of existence. Like, that's a thing people bounce back from. Uh, actually he did. What? He went to law school. Oh! But then became a priest, so I don't know. <laughs> how, does, how do you go to law school after you do a thing like that? Their justice system is, is very different than ours. It's a lot. Like, I assume you can still join the bar after you've committed a crime, but, like... Uh, You'd never get out of prison if you did that in modern America. <laughs> Japan has just a very different culture around beheading. Wow. Like he he was he was technically charged with assisting a suicide. I guess. I, I mean he was gonna die either way, but still, still, oh my god. <laughs> it's just it's so morbid. It's so. Uh, I guess morbid. it's just different when it's consensual. Ah, uh, uh, sure, but it's still bad. How many people in the modern world have have ever chopped anyone's head off? Never mind, two close friends. <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of consensual beheading in the modern world. It's just not You've something... got a unique perspective. It's just not done. He should write a book. No. No. <laughs> We've seen where that leads. No. <laughs> no one should write a book. Apparently it does things to you. <laughs> oh. Uh, the remaining Tatanokai righted the heads then bowed to them. They uh, then ungagged the commandant and allowed him to bow likewise. Uh, then they began to sob <laughs> as the commandant comforted them and told them to cry it out. Just the weirdest day of this man's life. Oh my gosh. Like, he's got kidnapped by these kids. He's held hostage by these kids. Then he has to comfort them while he's still tied up. Next to two headless corpses. <laughs> He's still looking at them. This is a lot. <laughs> this is not a good day at work. I feel like he takes some days off after this. Like, I don't know how many in the 70s, how many army therapists they had, but I hope they had at least one specifically for this dude. I, oh, I don't know what kind of leave, stress leave. I feel like this qualifies. 
I think you're excused for everything for the rest of your life. So. As long as you want to be excused, you can be excused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think even, like, like if you want to get out of an argument with your wife from then on, you're just like, um, yeah, maybe I didn't do the dishes, dear, but I saw a man behead a 25-year-old in front of me. Yep. <laughs> Yep, it's for like, you know, no what? reason. You, nothing that you don't you don't have to do anything you don't want to forever. This is yeah. Sword based double suicide ring a bell. Maybe I don't have to take the trash out. <laughs> I'd be a real dick about it too. I I'd bring it up constantly. <laughs> Jesus. Anytime people are like, I had a really rough day. I'm like, you think you had a rough day? Let me tell you, November 25th, 1970. (laughs) I saw a famous author gut himself like a fish. (laughs) Your grandchildren would just, like, roll you into the river to stop hearing the story. Oh, yeah. You gotta milk this. I, I would never let it go. No. No. They, they then released the Commandant's legs, and uh, afterwards, at his request and assurance that he wouldn't try anything, and against the in- direct instructions of Mishima, uh, they likewise untied his arms, before leading him out into the hall and submitting to arrest at 12.20. This all happened pretty quickly. I mean, it's like two hours, but they didn't- It happens so <laughs> fast. They didn't make a day of it. Like, this was part of their day, but this was not their whole day. Like, Mishima, as ever, was efficient. He got shit done. Clearly, this is the key to productivity. You know, get up early, have an itinerary, have a schedule. Make sure your collaborators know every step. Make sure people are in places. (laughs) They did not waste time. But can you imagine how out of the blue this has to be for his family? It's all over, and, like, it's, like, one day you're just, like, the family of a morbid author, and, like, the next, like, what the hell? Yeah, like, they hear about this on the news. His wife sees him that morning. He he had a bit of a weird schedule. Like, he used to, like, work all night and, like, get up at, like, 1 p.m., um, which, like, is Same. the only thing not- <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, obviously, like, he's- it's one way in which he's, like, kind of a classic writer- he gets up unusually early. He's out the door at 10. He gets picked up by his weird fucking college students that he hangs out with, but you don't ask because you're used to this shit. <laughs> and then, like, three hours later, you're hearing on the news that he's dead because he gutted himself at a military base. Yeah. I thought this what was, like, some shit? dragged out, like, eight-hour ordeal. No, no. He was, like, in no. and done. This was... Yo, boom, boom, boom. Wham, bam. (laughs) Oh, the sound effects were not necessary. (laughs) They were, though. I like them. They're a lot. Yeah, and and Marita, like, the person I feel most sorry for, other than, like, obviously Mishima's kids, like, you know, daddy abandoned you to go murder himself on television. Yeah, that's that's gotta do things to a person. Like, Marita, like, the the 25-year-old, he's orphaned at a very early age. He doesn't have a lot of family. 
But the man who raised him was his older brother, who was a school teacher, I believe. And that guy does not see this coming. Oh. Even after he is 90 years old, this guy is still searching for meaning in his brother's death. This is his only family. And he dies in this incredibly strange way. Yeah, that that he chose, which is the strange thing. He goes to his death completely unnecessarily alongside this 40-something-year-old best-selling author on the floor of a military base. Like, there's an interview with him that I read that where he says, like, when people ask him, like, oh, do you think your brother was delusional? And he says, like, I hope he wasn't. Because then, like, what did he do this for? Like, I hope he found what he was looking for. I hope this had some meaning for him. And I'm just like, there is nothing quite like the stoicism of an elderly Japanese man to just hit you right in the gut. Well, like, I I do feel badly for their families because, you know, this is, I I don't want to say it was pointless. Maybe, like he said, it did have personal meaning for them, but it was just such a weird stage play of a coup that did nothing. They died in what basically amounted to a television stunt, like, that nobody took seriously. People barely even listened to the speech, which was the whole point of this. I don't know if anyone took him seriously until the moment they walked in and they just found his guts all over the floor. Yeah, they might have thought this was all some weird joke until then, which was the exact opposite of what he wanted. He wanted his death to be, like full of meaning he wanted it to be this ephemeral uh, profound experience and it's just like it amounts to like a bad reality tv stunt it's this thing where like i'm like it's enigmatic but not necessarily in the way he wants it to be it he has this very dramatic understanding of death And he wants it to be meaningful, and he searches so long for a way in which his death could be meaningful. But I think, ultimately, he proved himself right. Unless you have a cause to die for, dying is just sort of quotidian and sad. Well, yeah, I mean, like, he doesn't die a warrior's death. He goes out of his way to invent this very bizarre scenario that nobody really understands what's happening. He ends up being in, like, comedy listicles for how weird he is. That's not what he was going for. You know, and it no. seems like he, he spent his whole life fixated on his own death to the detriment of actually enjoying his life. Like, he spent his whole life planning for this, like, very profound, um, very meaningful death. And, like, he just he just sort of was, like... <laughs> It ends up being kind of a joke. Like, it's not what you were going for. But when Mishima's body was turned over to his family the next day, which is very fast for an attempted coup, his neck had been neatly sutured and his face carefully made up by police. Before his cremation, he was dressed just as requested. Sword in hand, white gloves. The surviving Tatanokai lieutenants were sentenced to four years and released a few months early. 
all went on to live normal or even successful lives. As previously stated, Furukoga attended law school and later became a priest. Ogawa even served as a secretary of politician Abe Motu. Chibikoga married and presumably continued being a tiny little badass. But this sort of brings us to Mishima's legacy. As much as we've been kind of joking about this and talking about, like, you know, what purpose did this have? What was the point of this? I mean, it is pretty sensational. I mean, he he made a statement. He did. He did that. Yes. Statement made. You got our attention. But what were you trying to say? I think we in the West have struggled sort of to conceptualize uh, Mishima, to sort of consider him. We sort of don't really have a strong conception or a strong cadre of simultaneous fascist slash right-wing icon and LGBT icon slash literary icon. That's just not something we're fully equipped to emotionally handle. Those things don't converge for us often. No, they're a bit of a weird combination. Especially in the like the particular like way he was, where he wasn't really a tyrant, he wasn't really fighting for any particular cause other than the culture of Japan in sort of a nebulous gut feeling way. It's very abstract. And we, and we we can joke about it because like this 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 death feels pointless and incoherent from a Western perspective, but to a Japanese perspective, it doesn't necessarily. Like there was a lot of people like like in the days after his death, right wing students dressed in kimono and traditional garb, they would come to the gates of his family's home and they would bow. Like they were very deeply inspired by him. And he's off, his death is often marked as a point that helped shift Japanese right-wing views from like a pro-American anti-communist stance to sort of a ethnic nationalism and anti-Americanism stance, which you can say is negative, you can say is positive, but is definitely an impact. It's something. It's, it's something. And you can argue that, like, as much as, like, our, our default in the West is to view anti-Americanism as bad, it's probably better than not that Jap- the Japanese view themselves as having a value which is not subordinate to American interests. And, and he was likewise uh, one of the inaugural honorees of the Rainbow Honor Walk, uh, which is a walk of fame in San Francisco's Castro district, uh, David Bowie, in particular, was very inspired by him, had a large portrait made of him, and likewise used him as part of the inspiration for the film he starred in, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, which was a very homoerotic movie about prisoners of war. Interesting. It's hard to put it in a box. It's... <laughs> Like, this is, this is the thing, is, like, I have read hundreds of pages of words about this guy, and I still don't think I understand him. <laughs> no, he contained multitudes. Reading his Wikipedia article will not let you fully understand him. Reading his entire oeuvre will not help you understand him. Yeah. He's I... just too weird for that. He defied but... definition. 
But the one thing I would say is, regardless of the fact that he died in a largely futile coup in which he disemboweled himself in front of terrified 20-somethings, I don't think he was crazy. No. And that's a weird conclusion to come to. He just didn't fit in this world, maybe. It's hard to say. Because, like, I think he kind of expresses a lot about Japan throughout his life. He is part of this lost generation that has this sharp lack of cultural continuity following the Second World War. There is this massive shift in what is allowed to be expressed in Japanese culture following the American occupation that just leaves a lot of people behind. I mean, he and he knows what he's about. Like, he was deliberate in everything that he did, even if some of it was out there. We cannot say that he was delusional. We cannot say that he was psychotic. We cannot say that he did not know what he was doing. We can disagree with it. We can say that it was pointless. We can find it very odd. <laughs> we can say that we find it very odd, or that like there was better ways of achieving what he wanted. But you cannot call him crazy. And that's sort of the conclusion I've come to. Were his actions crazy? A hundred percent. No. <laughs> no. No, he seemed too deliberate for that. He seemed... You don't uh, single-mindedly pursue a goal for most of your ad like adolescent and adult life because you don't know what you want. Like, he, he was... He was clearly very single-minded in his pursuit of this, even if most of us would find it a very strange thing to pursue. But people, people dedicate their lives to weirder things than an honorable death. I, for one, have always wanted to seduce the queen. <laughs> Jessica, you can't do that. You will literally do more jail time than the kids <laughs> that beheaded each other. It's... <laughs> you cannot. She can behead you... me afterwards. I'm into it. You cannot. Lizzie is not up for it. Why don't you finally get use that sword, Elizabeth? Use it for something real. I'm so terrified of when you are vaccinated and can be unleashed upon the world once more. <laughs> I'm feeling pent up, Janelle. I haven't been able to shock strangers like I used to. I'm sure you are. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you are. I have weak lungs and a delicate constitution, but I am down to swim in fountains once more. Wonderful. I'm ready. Unleash me. <laughs> Unleash me. I will do no such thing. I will do more jail time than the kids who <laughs> staged the coup. <laughs> just for uh... just for abetting you, aiding and abetting, and help anything that you do to help Jessica is legally aiding and abetting. It doesn't matter what the <laughs> outcome is. Uh, even running me errands, it's it's all very legally dubious. Do not aid and abet the Jessica. But that's been, that's been Mishima Yukio. It's, it's been real. <laughs> it's been unbelievably real. Far realer than it should have been. I don't know if I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I don't. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I definitely hope you weren't inspired by this episode. No, no. This no. is a cautionary tale. But I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. Farewell. We still need to sign off. It's still awkward. It, it feels unnatural. Um, maybe we just go with the old one. I like the old one. It'd be a good send off. Okay, we'll do the old one. I'm Jessica. And I'm Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French 
and fabulous. We're out of practice now. Nah. Uh.